We don't want a cow to go eat because she's been out of feed for so long that she's hungry and she needs to eat now, right? Sure. No, we want cows to be internally hungry. We want her metabolism and uh, basically her, her body's ability to empty the rumen and clear metabolites uh, quickly so that she has that signaling wherever it's coming from, from the rumen, from the liver, right, to the brain saying, now it's time to eat again, right? Like, I'm hungry I gotta go eat. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt, Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. AB Vista, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. ICC Animal Nutrition a Brazilian company with 30 years of history and present in more than 70 different countries, providing natural, sustainable, and technological solutions for animal nutrition, health, and well-being in a safe and scientific way, adding value in food production and helping to feed the world. Welcome back to the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Barry Bradford from Michigan State University, and this week I'm really pleased to be speaking with Dr. Trevor DeVries. Trevor's a professor and the Canada Research Chair in the Department of Animal Biosciences at the University of Guelph. He received his Bachelor's of Science in Agriculture from the University of British Columbia in 2001. Immediately following that, he began his graduate studies at UBC, where he received his PhD in 2006. After that, he spent a year as a postdoctoral fellow with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, and in 2007, he was appointed as faculty with the University of Guelph in the Department of Animal Biosciences. In that position, Trevor leads a highly productive research program focused on dairy cattle nutrition, management, behavior, and welfare. Trevor, thanks so much for joining us on the Dairy Podcast Show. Oh, thanks for the invite. It's a pleasure to uh, yeah, be here with you and, and have this discussion here today. So from being kind of on the conference circuit, I know that you're in great demand as a speaker, um, and I'm just curious, kind of off topic a little bit, to ask you about your experience through through COVID. So you were traveling a ton before COVID, March 2020, all those plans got canceled for probably at least a year. Are you kind of back on the normal schedule again? Have you adapted how you approach travel? Yeah, I would say, yeah, travel's back, um, probably more than I want at this point, again. Uh we were a little slower, I think, to get kind of back on things here in Canada than uh, in the U.S., the largely related to some of the restrictions and stuff that we had in place here. But sure, yeah, especially in the last half year, things have really picked up again. And looking forward to 2023, there's probably committed to more things than I than I probably should have at this point already. And uh, as you know, sometimes those requests don't stop either. So, um. But yeah, it, I guess yeah, it was a it was a good time actually from that perspective. Uh, I think many people I talked to realized that when 
our travel got shut down, that there was some huge benefits associated with that, right? From a personal mental health, just just physical health perspective, right? Having kind of a, a break. And and that's something that I, I I really kind of enjoyed for a good part of that too, just having yeah, more time. You don't realize sometimes how much time gets sucked up and yep. um uh, and and yeah, again, time for family, time for other projects, so to speak, right? And so that's that's kind of yeah, it taught me too. I think at that same time, uh, I was kind of learning that I needed to do better with my time, anyways. And uh, in terms of my kind of work life balance, and uh, and that that really kind of set me in place, and yeah. And I think I've carried that forward, so to speak, in, in the last, uh, yeah, kind of even since getting back into, right, normal, more normal, again, uh, uh, life, so to speak. And, and yeah, kind of taking that as a lesson as I plan kind of my, yeah, my time going forward. Not to pry too much and maybe you don't have a clear answer, but is there is there like one key thing like, oh, now I do this where I, I didn't before? Uh yeah, I don't know if there's there's one key thing. I think it's uh, yeah, just finding more leisure time. <laughs> I guess it's right. Uh, in all in all fairness, like like yeah, I, I I enjoy yeah, I enjoy various sports. I enjoy fishing and 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 just finding time or making more time for those kind of things is I I think hugely important, and that's something that yeah, I guess that comes with age too. I think uh, yep. Uh, just just being able to recognize that need to then that we don't need to be working 24 hours a day either that yeah okay speaking of working i guess we should get down to business <laughs> um so one thing that you're really known for i think is well i guess i think of you as like the linchpin sort of linking the animal behavioral world to sort of the nutrition world which i think is a really important spot to be in um, so you've been really a leader in understanding how dairy cow behavior relates to feeding management. And certainly, you know, I, I'm sure to you, it maybe starts to sound repetitive, but lots of farms or consultants that I talk to the topic of, um, dealing with, you know, timeliness of feeding and, and feed pushups and stuff is always top of mind because of the turnover in, in staff and just things get busy. So do you have a kind of a basic summary of your research in this space? Is there like certain number of push-ups per day? Is there a key benefit for feed intake or is it just making sure cows can access the feed? Yeah, no, yeah, loaded question and kind of a, I guess, a summary of work we've done for many years. And and it's funny, you kind of put it in in, in those terms too, right? Because sometimes I'm like, I get asked to speak about or write about the subject area and I'm going, well, we've been working on this for so many years. Like I keep saying the same thing over and over, but people keep wanting to hear it. Right. And so it's a question of, well, why is that? Right. And is it just because it is that important or we still don't do a good enough job. Right. And, and I think there's, there's probably elements of both of those things going on there. Um, and then from a practical standpoint, yeah. And even teach that to the students. Often we, um, I'm involved in in the Dairy Challenge program, and and so in part of that we we train students to look for yeah opportunities on the farm often right and 
from a nutritional standpoint, yeah, there's sometimes, yeah, the students look at diets and they get really into the nitty gritty of things and, and think, oh, maybe we've got to tweak this or this. And then you kind of get them to step back and take a bigger picture and go, well, are the cows actually eating the feed that we're putting in front of them, right? And, and then are they actually accessing the feed, right? Is is that feed actually there for them to eat, right? And uh, and, and that's not only an exercise in, in education sometimes, but it's even just on farm, right? When I talk to a lot of consulting nutritionists, right, who they can get sometimes five, 10 pounds of milk overnight on farms just by making sure the cows have feed. Yes. Um, and, and, and so, uh, again, it's, it sounds kind of like a simple thing, but it's in reality, it's not necessarily that case. And, um, I think, yeah, the, the reason, well, we know that, yeah, Cows eat for various reasons, right? They, we think they eat to to meet their requirement, and there's elements to that, right? And 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 that's yeah, we take advantage of that from a production standpoint, and so, and and we want to optimize that. We want to, uh, yeah, we want to maximize efficiency, but part of that is also just maximizing the amount of nutrients in, so we can get the most nutrients out of those animals, and. And, and and so we need to think about well what's what drives that kind of nutrient intake so to speak right and uh, I guess my first thesis is always well we want that to be internally driven in cows right like we don't want a cow to go eat because she's been out of feed for so long that she's hungry and she needs to eat now right sure no we want cows to be internally hungry we want her metabolism and uh, basically her, her body's ability to empty the rumen and clear metabolites uh, quickly so that she has that signaling wherever it's coming from, from the rumen, from the liver, right, to the brain saying, now it's time to eat again, right? Like, I'm hungry, I got to go eat. And so uh, we want that internally driven. And then when she goes to the feed bunk, we want that feed there. And that's where we run into the issue there is sometimes our feeding management doesn't match that, right? And so uh, ensuring that that feed is there so that, yeah, the, the the cow is going to eat when she goes there. And then also that she eats a consistent diet. And that's the other kind of reason why we push up feed is not only ensuring, say, feed is there, but then making sure as, as those cows yeah eat that diet and they sort through it, which, again, is a behavior that they do on a TMR, uh, we want to make sure that that feed gets yeah turned over and mixed to and kept fresh, so to speak, for those animals as well so that again they're going to be eating not only consistently in time but also consistent in composition so to speak absolutely what one thing that came to mind when you were talking is something that we've been spending a little bit of time on um this idea that at least some cows and herds are really rigid in where they want to eat and i'm curious if you've actually seen this in research data but we we have lots of anecdotal stories about watching a cow that's maybe colored a certain way so it's easy to keep track of her, you know, going up to the feed bunk, uh, apparently looking for a meal, and then that little spot of the bunk is empty, and so just kind of shrugging and going back to her bed and giving up, as opposed to walking, you know, three meters down the, the feed line. Yeah. Do you think that's a real thing? Well, yeah, no, I, I, it is a real thing. Quantifying who those are and why is a whole other issue, right? Like, yeah. again, lots of great anecdotes, right? Like, 
you ever walk down a feed bunk to either a rail or, or, or headlocks and you see like a, uh, like an opening for people to walk through or whatever, right? Like where it's usually a little wider, you'll, you'll often see like the biggest bossiest looking cow standing in that spot. Right. And again, right. Like she's defined that as her spot. And that was actually a, a, a former colleague of mine uh, who's since passed away, but he, he always made that anecdote, right? He walk into a bar and he's like, yeah, you find that spot and you're going to find the boss cow standing kind of there. Right. And and you see that in other cases too, right? Like there's certain cows, as we advance with technology and we can track animal position in the barn, uh, for example, you'll see that some cows stick to certain areas, whereas some cows will graze, so to speak, the whole bunk versus those cows that may, may uh, stay in, in, in certain spots. And maybe, yeah, if, if there's not feed available, and that's, again, comes back to that feeding management thing. If that feed's not distributed well, we're not monitoring that, um, maybe that feed is sorted through in that area, then, yeah, then the nutrition of that animal who wants to eat in that certain spot might be compromised. Again, um, a lot of this is, yeah, stuff visually we've kind of noticed, and as you, you alluded to as well, the actual quantification of that, it's still, it's coming, right? As we kind of develop some of these technologies that allow us to do that too, right? And I think there's a lot of opportunity there to kind of look at that. Now, it comes back to often then, and that's another area of, of research that we are working in is looking at kind of how individual cows vary depending on their behavioral profile, right? Right. And so not every cow, even though we, we often, well, group cows that are of, similar age production, all these kind of things doesn't mean that they're all going to behave the same. And we know that, uh, in fact, we know that cows have behavioral profiles or even what we call personalities, right? There's, there's cows that are more bold versus more shy those that are more explorative, right? And yep. so all those kind of things, just like you and I, so to speak, uh, that's going to determine how we interact and, and, and our behavior in general. We know that from an animal perspective, those cows will do the same. And it's going to, yeah, it's going to have an impact on, yeah, when they eat, where they eat, where they stand in a group, all those kind of things are, are determined by that. And so that's, again, an area that we've been particularly interested in because, yeah, we get, we get caught up on mean responses on cows and research often and fail to kind of look at the variability around things sometimes, right? Yep. And so why is it that you have cows on this end versus this end and what's the difference between those animals, right? And and a lot of times, or in many cases, it's uh, their behavior that's Im- influencing some of that variation. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for sharing your insights there. That's kind of things we've been thinking about too. Um, okay, so you know, when you work with farms, um, the, the, the old joke is that if you're a professor, the answer to every single question is it depends, right? And so that's because it's usually the right answer. But I'm sure you get asked. Or we need more research, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure you get asked, you know, okay, tell me how many times per day I need to push up feed. Like, how do you answer that typically? Or are there certain factors that help you determine what's a, a good number for a farm? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the answer is, yeah, it depends. Uh, but... I guess my my cheeky answer, so to speak, is I, and it goes back to the statement I was making earlier about what drives a cow to eat. Mm -hmm. 
And and my answer would be, I want to do that as often as I need to, so that the cows don't respond to it. Oh, okay. Right. So right. So if if I push up feed at any time and one cow is stimulated because of that, that means that right maybe for that one cow, there wasn't feed in the spot that she wanted to eat at or, right. Or as a group of cows, there just wasn't feed uh, available to them or within reach for those animals. And so, um, that's kind of my, my general statement would be, yeah, like we want to do that as often as it takes so that the cows don't necessarily respond. The feed is there when the cow is hungry and goes up and, and wants to eat and, and have that next meal. And and so yeah, that's then the the question is well, what's going to determine that right? And and so again, things like how often we're delivering fresh feed to the cows is going to come into play there, right? So potentially the more often we feed per day, like we feed once versus twice, or we get into more often feeding, which we're starting to see a little bit with automation and things like that as well. Uh, potentially that doesn't have to happen as much still needs to happen because even in those cases, you still could have an empty bunk. And and that's a situation that we don't want because, yeah, that cow gets up, she goes to the bunk, there should be feed there for her. Um, How sortable the diet is, right? So a diet that's more sortable, we probably want to be pushing up more often because, uh, and and this is where sometimes, yeah, we've got dry cow diets that are often more sortable than lactating diets. And and our, our facilities are sometimes lacking for dry cows, right? That's mm-hmm. kind of, right? We we prioritize our facilities often, like our milking cows and our dry cows and our, can, well, really ha- calves in between there, and that, right? Yep. Down to the heifers. But, and then even management of feeding, right? Like how many farms, even bigger farms that they're feeding dry cows still every second day or, right? And, yep. Um, not pushing up feed as often, right? And paying attention. But those diets... In, in many respects, can be more sortable. We often include s- certain specialty ingredients in them that we want to ensure cows are eating to a certain level. And 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 again, if the management of the feed is not good, we're not going to achieve kind of those outcomes. And then the big one that comes into play there too is is uh, stocking density at the feed bunk too, right? And yep. pen densities. And so in, in a in a barn that's yeah. At 100% stocking density, while it's it's important, but uh, a barn that's overcrowded, where we know that those cows are going to be competing for access, they're not necessarily all going to get to the bunk, say, right after they come out of the parlor or wherever, whatever time of day it is, maybe that fresh feed was delivered, becomes that much more important for when kind of, let's say, wave two of cows come to the bunk, that, uh, that we make sure that that feed is there and again is pushed up. And so... In those cases, yeah, and having a feed first push up quickly after the the first delivery of feed is is more important. Probably within a half an hour to an hour of, of getting that feed back pushed pushed in for those animals, and then doing that on a regular basis. And yeah, I think functionally for most farms, we're probably looking at at least every couple hours of the day. Um, and some farms it, it, it's potentially even on the hour throughout, throughout the day, right. Uh, where, where we could see benefit from that. And, and again, it varies and that's going to vary by, and you got to pick your battles too, right. On, on kind of farm size and, and labor dynamics and all those kind of things too, right. Where if we've got large farms where we've got things happening 24 hours per day, 
we've got labor on site 24 hours per day, then that becomes much more easy to operationalize. If we're small to medium-sized farm where, yeah, maybe we're still milking 2x, uh, we don't have people in the barn necessarily between 8, 9, or sorry, 9, 10 at night and 4 in the morning kind of thing, um, then, yeah, those those feeding management things become more important. And, and that's where, um, yeah, automation then can play a, a bigger role in, in those scenarios as well. Not not only in those smaller farms, but it, but also in the bigger farms there too. So. Yeah. Let me, let me step back and dig into one comment you made for a second. You said, I like this. You said that you need to push up as many times as necessary to where the cows are not responding. So I, I used to think of... Um, one of the benefits of additional push-ups is being sort of a Pavlovian response of like, oh, when this comes through, it's like the 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 bell and the dog knows he's going to get food, so he can, you know starts drooling. Um, but you know, thinking through what you're saying, I guess your point might be that if an animal is entrained to come to the bunk in a Pavlovian manner, when the f- push-up goes by, that means at some point she was coming to the bunk and there was no feed until that came. Like she had to get trained that way in some point, right? Is that kind of the way you'd say? Yeah, I, I would say that. And and again, I, I question because people do make those comments or they say, oh yeah, we've got a, a bell on the tractor okay. or, right there, or on the skid steer or whatever, right? And Or a light's flashing or whatever it might be kind of thing. And, and the cows respond to that. And yeah, you're, you're correct in that. Yeah, to to be trained in that, they would have had to have kind of the the stimulus or lack of stimulus, so to speak, right? To 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 learn that response. And then the question is, yeah, does does that get retained and truly retained in those animals? And it goes back to actually a study I did in my PhD. We we're looking at timing of feed delivery, and so we did a study where we took cows that were milked twice a day and we fed them twice a day, uh, delivered new TMR, either at milking time or actually I pushed it, so basically on a 12-hour kind of interval, or pushed it forward by six hours. So the cows are milking at about 6 a.m., 6 p.m. We either fed them at those times or we had other groups of cows that we still milked at those times where we fed them at 12 noon and, and 12 a.m., so midnight. And it was interesting because when I, we started the trial, we had a couple groups. These are freestyle groups on, on the one treatment, a couple groups on the other. I went in the barn in the middle of the night to 12 a.m. And I think there was lights on in the alley or something like that. But, but the tractor was parked down the alley with the with the mixer wagon. And I, um, I was given the job. I was a grad student and I guess the farm staff didn't want to <laughs> be there delivering feed. So I started up the tractor and right to deliver feed. And the first night or two nights, maybe like I started out the tractor and like that side of the barn or maybe even the whole barn, like everybody jumped on their feet kind of thing. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and I was like, okay, yeah. Right. Like these cows know what's, what's coming and what's happening. Right. But yeah, I drove down the alley and just delivered feed to two pens and there was two other pens that weren't on my treatment. Right. And they didn't get fresh feed, even though a bunch of them had jumped up. And, and then I, parked the tractor down the alley and and turned it off for the night kind of thing and it, that happened for two or three nights but after and i don't remember exactly but probably probably three or four nights started up the tractor 
boom, only the two groups that were getting fed jumped up. Nobody else jumped up. Right. Yeah, that's so, interesting. So they know, right? Like in that yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, they they learned very quickly or associated, right? Like based on again, they they we do know they 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 can yeah they had internal clocks so to speak, right? And and so they could figure out that yeah that was their time so to speak right and so again whether or not that's necessarily a good thing in that case right um is is another kind of question right so we do have that opportunity but the the question then becomes is yeah is that necessarily uh a good thing and and does it get retained in over long periods either right so right um I, I would say if there's no reward, right? If if the stimulus is there but there's no reward, then that's yeah, then the that that behavior is not going to be retained. And so in the case of like the feet push up, uh, for example, if yeah, if they're chronically low on feed and that feet push up does bring it back and right, that yeah, then that so, so to speak reward is there and and yeah, that may remain imprinted on that animal but um if we're actually doing a good job of making sure feeds there all the time then there's not really a need for that so to speak and 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 going back to what i said earlier like i really want because at the end of the day the 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 ability of that animal to put more nutrients into her body is going to be limited by basically the outflow of nutrients from the rumen of that cow as well as the speed at which she clears the end products of those digestion, right from from her uh, uh, from her body or, or internally, so it, it doesn't really matter what kind of stimulus is we external stimuli we create if she can't balance that off with that kind of internal yes. motivation to eat, right? Right. So that's where feed quality comes into play, right? We think of forage quality and and. We think about that from an efficiency and just total nutrient capture standpoint, but it actually comes back, to, especially in a, in a ruminant, right? Like the quicker she can digest forages, the quicker she's going to be able to put more into her, right? So that's kind of the the, the short and simple of that. Great. So you, you kind of started down this road too, and I wanted to come back to that now, that the whole question of whether automation to uh, sort of manage push-ups at a minimum um Makes sense. And, you know, I've seen some pretty solid analyses on returns to investment in, in robotic milk and your automatic feeding, or sorry, milking systems. I'm not sure I've ever seen that for these sort of push-up systems. Um, the investment is much smaller, but, you know, the, probably their impact on the farm is smaller too. And, if there, of course, there's a lot more automation in Canada than the U.S. So I'm curious, you know, you've probably been on lots of farms that use these what is your take? Have you done an analysis? Do you have a sense that people are investing in those still or are people moving away from it? No, I mean, yeah, that's a good question. I, um, interestingly, we see more adoption of that kind of technology with other technology, right? So, uh-huh. so within, say, those that are adopting robotic milking technology, we see a high proportion of those adopting feeding technologies too. We, we did a survey study, which we published, uh, uh, last year, I guess, and and of almost 200 robot farms in Canada, and uh, about 70% of those were also using robotic feed pushers. Okay, I didn't know that number. 
So, so it's pretty high, right? And and um, interesting. And kind of going back to your questions about that, like within that, we saw even added benefit of like more feed pushups, right, within okay. those herds. Yeah. So, uh, it's not just the technology; it's the frequency, some kind of combination. There's some U.S. data that I often quote too, showing difference in milk production. This was a study that came out of uh, Dr. Marcy Andrus's group in, in Minnesota, like showing. Um, a difference in, in milk between herds. These are robot herds, again, pushing up feed robotically versus not. And there's a huge number. And that the point I always make is it's not the robot that's so magical. It's the fact that probably the herds that weren't using a robot were just doing a really bad job, right? Yeah, it's more a study of the type of farm manager that would invest in a robot uh, or sometimes it's confounded, right? It's Again, in those cases, right? Like if it's the, these are maybe smaller, medium-sized robot farms, they don't have people there 24 hours a day, there's likely the bunks, if they're not using a robot feed pusher, that bunk's going empty. Um, if I'm a large dairy, and like I was alluding to earlier, I've got people there 24 hours a day, I can have an employee whose job it is to push up feed every hour or whatever it is, then, yeah, the 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 robotic feed pusher itself isn't going to do anything different other than potentially save labor and do so more consistently. And, and it can, and I think that's where that technology pays, right? Is it, it can do something more frequently, which can have benefit, but the consistency and the fact that again, as long as the technology is good and doesn't break down, right. But, even on large areas sometimes, right, the the person who's responsible for pushing up feed might also be responsible for walking just-in-time calving or, or whatever it might be, right? And, yeah. and Or they get distracted with something or they someone needs their help with something. And so the the job doesn't necessarily get done as consistently as we'd like. And, and that's where technology can really come into play is that it, it can replace that. So that's where from the interestingly, when we've looked at say feed push-up technology or, or feed push-up frequency like on a, in a controlled study design we don't necessarily always see the benefits but when we look at the data and field studies that's where we start to see benefits and it's i think it's because there's often in field studies it's the compounding of other sources of variation yes both measured and unmeasured so sometimes we're able to capture some of that and we try to control for that but sometimes there's other forms of variability or like you were alluding to management differences even, right? That yep. are going to influence the outcome on those farms. And so I think that's where we, we start to see that benefit. And so, um, yeah, in terms of an exact, I haven't seen an exact uh, um, cost benefit analysis, so to speak, other than what's provided commercially by uh, various companies, right, that might be selling the equipment. They're they're probably willing to do that, but um, the from from a researcher kind of publicly available standpoint, I haven't really seen that. But I would argue that we have enough evidence from research that we've done, both again on commercial farms as well as in controlled studies, that yeah we we can point to the to the potential benefit and it comes back to yeah like does the cost of labor as well as the consistency at which that labor can be done does that balance off with the cost of the technology yeah exactly 
Okay, so that kind of got us into uh, a little bit of talking about robotic milking. And I know, um, again, we've already alluded to the fact that the adoption rate is much greater in Canada than the U.S. And um, people like yourself and Greg Penner and others in Canada have, I think, been making the biggest strides in helping us understand how to handle nutrition on robotic farms. And uh, in the U.S., we've been looking to you guys for insights. So can you tell me a little bit about you know, what you're working on right now uh, around questions like that? Yeah, no, and and it's, yeah, it's it's a whole new world again, I, I would say, uh, from a nutritional management standpoint, right? Like we, we, we got, we got nutrition on dairy farms, I would say fairly dialed in, right? With TMR, group level feeding, um, again, breaking that down by, by production group, by parity group, all these kind of things. Uh, we could be fairly efficient feeding at a group level and and do so fairly consistently and and the the challenge with the robot is um yeah that that does get thrown into a little bit of a yeah uh, a, a challenge so to speak because yeah we're taking a certain proportion of uh that diet and putting it in the robot and 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 now there's there's positive and the negatives associated with that right the, yes. the 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 positive is that yeah we we have the opportunity to potentially feed that cow a little bit more uh well we we use the word precisely but we should be saying accurately right to her to her needs uh and then also maybe and then we want precision on top of that right we want to do that consistently and and the question is, can we do that? And we have challenges associated with that. And so that's, that remains one big area that we continue to work on is, is trying to understand like our ability to be able to do that, to target the individual animal. Because again, if we're going to be feeding that cow in that robot, it comes back to not only knowing her needs uh, and getting the right nutrients into the right cows at the right time, so to speak, you, that hinges or functions on her actually going there and eating the feed that we give to her, right? We can't guarantee that in all situations. So going back to kind of our earlier discussion on cow behavior, so that's one of the focuses of my group right now is looking at how individual cows differ from a behavioral standpoint and whether or not all cows kind of behave the same if, if we give them all the same feeding strategy and, and we realize at the end of the day they don't. And so that that becomes a, a challenge for us to overcome. Is there certain types of behavioral patterns that are better, right? Or, or um, and and I actually gave a presentation on this recently, where there was dairy producers in the audience, and dairy farmer came up to me after who milks with robots, and and the, and and said to me, "I'd love to be able to determine which cows are going to be right, like my non-problem cows, yes, right, based based on her genetics, right." So. And we're just actually we just did a kind of a pilot study on that uh, this past summer. One of my one of my former students looking at just how heritable some of those traits might be, even mm-hmm. as well. Um, just just scratching the surface, but I think there's we know there there is some heritability of behavior, and and so um, can we take advantage of some of that from from that perspective? And so that's that's kind of where we're where we're thinking or, or where we're kind of moving in in this direction. And then and then yeah, just beyond looking at that broadly too like can we do a better job um 
as I as I mentioned before, in terms of getting the right nutrients into the right cows at the right time. So, do we understand well enough how do we increase energy, nutrient supply, and early lactation? Right uh, to to get cows through the transition period, keep them healthy, get good peaks out of those cows, good persistency, and then on the tail end of that, do we also understand the end of lactation too? That we Right, we we don't oversupply. We we manage body condition on those cows well, uh, and those are still yeah, those are still real challenges that we have when it comes to feeding cows and in robots and and um, one of the big challenges and it kind of goes back to where I started was saying uh, we had kind of TMR feeding dialed in is that when you go out in the field now and you let's say you survey 10 different robot farms. And, and I see that in Canada, but I also see that in the U.S. I was in Europe recently and I saw the same thing. The feeding practices are different on all those farms. Over the board, aren't they? Yeah, all over the board, yeah. And, and, and there's not necessarily a correlation between one approach and necessarily a good outcome, right? Yeah, so you could have two farms that are performing very similarly, high level of milk production, good visits per day. They've got two totally different barn setups, traffic scenarios even, um, two totally different feeding approaches in the robot, right? Different types of feeds. And, and there doesn't seem to be a one-size-fits-all approach. And I think that's where there's a lot of... There, there's still some frustration because we got used to kind of almost a one size, right? Fits all approach. And, and a lot of accepted knowledge. Yeah. And the TMR system after 50, 80 years. Right. Yeah. And, and, and we've had to kind of back away from that and go, no, that, that that's not necessarily the case. Right. And, um, and that's, that's, that's a challenge from an application standpoint. It's, it's a challenge from a research because again, a lot of the research that we're doing too becomes very situational specific. Mm-hmm. Right, like my facility is designed different than you mentioned, uh, Dr. Greg Penner, right, in Saskatchewan, and, and and Greg's facility is different than ours, right, and so even though we might run the same trial, we might not get the same sure results, yeah, yeah. right, because of the way the facility is designed and and the way the cows are directed to the robot, or all these kind of things, or and that's what we see in the field too, so. They said a lot of job security, right, for research. Well, that's, yeah, again, like from that research perspective, that's that's exciting, right? Yeah. Are there any other newer dairy farm technologies that you're looking into? Well, I guess I guess there's things I have interest in that uh, we're giving more thought to. And, and um, one of those is, yeah, kind of integration of technology. Uh, so we do have a lot of technologies. And and so with the robots, right, we, we talked about, yeah, how do we do a better job there, right? Like, um, can we incorporate more than just, yeah, knowing the production level of the cow or even her days in milk, right? Is there other attributes of that cow that we can incorporate in terms of our prediction models? Uh, again, we know that we can predict dry matter intake and milk production based on other things in cows, right? So. Yeah body weights, body condition scores, right? Are we are we using that information? So that information we are able to capture automatically on farm now already. Yep. And so can we actually use that information, right? Uh, milk spectral analysis, right? So um, fatty acid composition, there's some, some new papers coming out on that, right? Looking at whether or not we can use that information potentially to 
predict changes in cows and then use that as kind of in a feedback loop to to the nutrition of those animals as well. And so I think that's where we're moving. The, the, the information's there in a lot of cases. It's a matter of finding out how do we model that and then how do we right, incorporate that into, into our, um, yeah, the, the software, et cetera, that, that are needed in these systems. And then I think probably, again, from, from a monitoring standpoint, one, one area that kind of excites me is, is the whole computer vision uh, area. There's, we've seen a lot of development of that in the last few years, still got a ways to go um but uh yeah i've been really keen for years on monitoring cow behavior right sensor technology collars right leg base sensors all these kind of things um the thing that excites me about the computer vision stuff is that i think a lot of that can be replaced with computer vision right although like we we could have a one stop kind of system right that monitors cow behavior, monitors the facilities, monitors the people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, monitors the feed, all those kind of things could be done under one umbrella. And and we can use that to be uh, proactive and reactive, right? So we can use that for decision-making uh, to be preventative, so to speak, or to correct issues. And we can also then be reactive in terms of monitoring cows. We can use it for reproduction, uh, all those kind of things. And so I think if someone could develop that and that system, like that does it all, then uh, that's where I see the the industry moving. Now, a lot of companies are in that, in that space right now and they're all working on their own kind of niches. Uh, but putting it all together, I think, is, is where the industry needs to get to. Great. It'll be exciting to see what we can do in 10 years in that, in that space, I think. It's time for our famous three. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. ICC Animal Nutrition, adding value to nutrition. Exelite by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Fibro Animal Health Corporation, Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. As we uh, approach the end here, we've got three questions we throw at every one of our guests, and it's fascinating for me to hear the different answers. First question, what's your favorite dairy-related book or resource? Good question. I don't know if I can answer that with one thing, uh, because I think it, it depends on the form of media, I'd say, so to speak, right? Like, I'd say I'd say my my go to and and I think we've heard it actually in these podcasts already. Like my go to book and it's sitting on the shelf behind me up behind me there is is my old uh, Van Seuss nutritional ecology of the ruminant. Like that's like it goes back to I, I inherited that from my uh, initial uh, graduate advisor and like it, it, if I still want to learn something today, right? That I open that up and and read about yeah different aspects of the rumen or right to microbes or whatever it might be. Right. That, uh, yeah, I I think the first edition came out, uh, and I think it was 82 or something like that. Right. So, um, yeah. Uh, so that'd be my go-to there, but yeah, kind of more, more modern day, so to speak resource, I would say why from an academic standpoint, I, I'm still kind of geeked out, I guess, when it comes to the journal of dairy science, like, 
when I get my monthly alert, I open that up and I right, I scan through it, scan the table of contents, looking for papers I want to read and things that excite me. So, uh, and then beyond that, like just just uh, yeah, trade magazines still excite me. Right, seeing different different articles, and then the the particularly in the last few years, like podcasts like this and and other online webinar platforms, pot, like different podcast platforms. Um, again, I, 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 they, they all excite me and, and I, I, I like to listen to them. It's just a matter of finding time. It's, it's, that's, that's always the challenge, yeah. right? Although it's better to be in an area where you're excited and wish you could do more than to be bored, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. What's your favorite book or resource outside of ag? Ooh, yeah, that, that, that's an interesting one. Cause I, I, um, Outside of work, and I have to admit, like I, I don't read much fiction, nonfiction. Like I'll pick up the odd uh, um, uh, fiction book when I'm on vacation. Yep. Right. That, it, and you know, I'm really relaxed, I guess, and <laughs> yeah, I've kind of thrown everything to the wind, so to speak. But yeah, beyond that, uh, I don't know. Like I, I don't, I don't, I'm not one to kind of read nonfiction, kind of books to guide my life or anything like that or my viewpoints on life it's i'd say mo- most of that's kind of based in my faith and right and yeah probably my bible right that's uh, that's where i get my guidance from uh from that perspective um on the on the entertainment side of things yeah like i said i, I read a little bit here and there but then i also i like my uh my outdoor kind of enthusiast uh, type channels on social media. And yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, I guess my downtime kind of thing uh, uh, um, or, or, or my brain goes in my downtime. Yep, your mental health break. <laughs> All right. Last question. And in your opinion, what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those that are less successful? And, and when you refer to dairy professionals, is that like all levels uh, within the industry or, or all categories, I guess? Yeah, I think, but take it however you want. Yeah, I know that's a that's a good question. I, I I think there's a lot of things that set people apart, right? Um, attributes that come to mind are are people who are passionate about the industry, and and kind of yeah, all levels, right? So from from uh, the ground up, like I think of people like ourselves who are in academia, right? Th- those those that are. Yeah, connected and passionate, right from kind of ground level up to kind of the higher levels of science that we might be involved with, right? And and you see the same thing kind of work through, right? Like if you speak to people working directly as as dairy kind of industry professionals, um, whether in consultative consultative roles or nutritionists, veterinarians, um, and then and then dairy producers themselves, like you see that those that I think are are quote unquote most professional and, 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 and are the ones that are, yeah, connected through kind of right from ground level on the farm, right up to some of the higher level things that we're trying to achieve from, from a research and development standpoint. And, and then part of that too is, is not necessarily, and I think that goes with a lot of things in life, but like not necessarily too inward looking either, right? Always kind of looking outside, um, not scared of, development and change and and yeah open to new ideas and i think that's that's where you see kind of the most progressive people right and 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 progressive professional whatever you might want to call it right yep. so great answer 
agree with you. All right, Trevor, as always, a very enjoyable conversation. Thank you for your time. I know it's valuable, uh, but I think a lot of people are going to enjoy this conversation. Yeah, no, thank you very much for the invite. It was a pleasure, and yeah, hopefully we can do it again sometime. So with that, we'll sign off another episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do it, and we'll see you next time.